formula to it. A very simple formula. Everybody's a suspect. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Courtney. And this is Everybody's a Suspect. The podcast where we talk about horror movies, specifically slashers. Today we're talking about the cinematic masterpiece that is Scream. I love this movie. It's excellent. I think I've seen this movie almost probably more times than I've seen Harry Potter and Star Wars. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. It's a fantastic movie, and it's an excellent slasher film, and it's an excellent compliment on the genre as a whole. This movie changed horror. I mean, I was only about six years old when this movie came out but like watching it and re-watching it I can see how this movie revamped the genre and you know it's it's really a staple and it helped like bring horror back to life um so a little bit about this movie uh it was released on December 20th 1996 what do we think about the December release yeah it was basically a Christmas release which is an interesting choice for a horror film but it actually did excellent at the box office so i have the budget listed at um 15 million and it grossed 173 million worldwide after being re-released in theaters in april 11th 1997 right you know what's hilarious though is i was reading the wikipedia on it and variety has stamped it as dead on arrival well i don't think 173 million worldwide is uh dead on arrival (laughs) sure the film was written by kevin williamson and directed by horror master wes craven it stars nev campbell courtney cox david arquette skeet ulrich jamie kennedy rose mcgowan and matthew lillard An excellent cast overall. Oh yeah, and I cannot wait till we get to talk about the cast. And I have a quote here from Empire. Uh, Empire's Adam Smith called it clever, quick, and bloody funny. Williamson's script was praised as containing a fiendishly clever, complicated plot, which deftly mixes irony, self-reference, and wry social commentary with chills and blood spills. The reason this quote stood out to me is because this movie is the definition of meta. So one thing I did want to talk about with Scream 2 is the it wasn't just the movie that was kind of like became a cult classic overall. It was just um, like it was everything about the film and the marketing and the acting and the cinematography. So every single detail of this movie has is some homage to the genre and and just really it's it's such like a it's almost like a love letter to what horror is and what it has done for our society what was your first encounter with the movie screen what was the first time you heard of it um i first experienced this movie at a sleepover um my sister had some friends who had sisters around my age and we were all hanging out at a grandparent's house um I mean I was only six when the movie came out but I think 
we ended up watching it like maybe a couple years later so maybe it was like eight or nine and let me tell you I was a scaredy cat little child like I was terrified of like everything but watching this movie I could not take my eyes off the screen and I remember it for two scenes specifically and I think we all know what two scenes I'm talking about the opening scene and the garage scene. Those two stuck in my head. Um, And this movie became one that I kept going back to over and over again. Um, It was so memorable and it made such an impression that it just, it opened the door for horror for me. Um, But yeah, it's the one I probably go back to the most. Absolutely. So it's interesting because I absolutely adore this movie now, but I remember the first time that I watched it, I didn't really understand that it was a satire. And so, and I wasn't really that into film. And so I just thought like, oh, it's like this scary movie. And I didn't understand about like the rules of slashers and just kind of the whole themes that run throughout it. And so I was just like, oh, it's this like teen, supposed to be scary movie, whatever. Um, I watched it with some friends in high school. And then later when I was in college, I watched it again after I had some more knowledge. And um, I was sort of just like blown away by like how layered every single scene is with meaning and like how just the casting and the little throwback lines that the actors have and just 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 how it's it's held up over time, even though some parts of it are a little dated. It's just, I, I, it's like you said, I always watch it and I keep finding little things or I'll like forget little references and be like, oh yeah, that's a throwback to this. And it just puts a smile on my face. Same. And I think we need to dive right in and talk about this opening sequence. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Something that I don't think people talk about enough is how this movie gets right into it i mean you have the dimension title you have the scream title card but then there are no opening credits it just jumps right into it even after this opening scene and it cuts to sydney at home on her computer there's no in-between credits either like there are no opening credits it just wants you to dive right into this movie absolutely there's no scene chop or anything right so this scene stars Drew Barrymore, which I think had everybody confused um, based on things that I've read from people who were able to actually witness this in theaters because, you know, we were both too young to see it in theaters. And everybody was really confused because Drew Barrymore was all over the marketing for it. And she's not going to die. She's going to be in it. And yeah. Yeah, she's the big Hollywood star. And the use of the phone calls and the voice Mm -hmm. is so genius. Absolutely. I mean, everything about the scene from, like, the framing to even just the idea of, like, because we have smartphones and everything now, but back then you had to pick up the phone and, like, ask who it was. There wasn't necessarily, like, caller ID. And, you know, she just has this, like, casual conversation with this completely random stranger, and it seems totally innocent. And then uh, when he asks her name... And he's like, I want to know who I'm looking at. And she kind of looks up and is like, wait, what? And that's when she's she goes, like, it's the fight or flight response where she's like, oh, wait, am I in danger? Like, I have to go look outside and, and do all these things because 
it was supposed to be this like lighthearted teen moment and then suddenly wait someone's watching me and i think that's a testament how we didn't treat everything so suspiciously back then i mean i remember being able to just walk down the street by myself and go to a friend's house right today that's not really how it goes so not having a caller id is kind of a foreign concept yeah. right now and you know just like when people call it cellular telephones not everybody had it not everybody had those but getting back to the opening mm-hmm. scene they mentioned the big three by seven and a half minutes yes and at the seven and a half minute mark this is when um steve is tied up and he's on the patio and casey is crying and on the phone and Ghostface mm-hmm. yeah is trying to get her to play this game and you know gives her the warm question who's the killer in halloween come on it's your favorite and she goes michael Myers. and then he asks her who's the killer in friday the 13th and she says jason it's jason and um that's when we get the official mention of the big three and she gets it wrong because it's pamela Voorhees. it's not jason in the original right and I hope you horror fans knew that going into this. And, of course, she gets it wrong, and Steve dies. So, kind of going back to this, do you think mm-hmm. that they made this reference to Pamela Voorhees not just because Jason's part of the big three, but possibly because of the motive reveal at the end? Well... I mean, they could have, like, slipped that in there because everything in this movie is just so layered with meaning. But on its own, that reveal in Friday the 13th was iconic and had never been done before. And so that was in itself this, like, groundbreaking idea that, like, wait, the, the you know, the killer isn't who we think it is. It's it's. I mean, again, it's like one of those things that you don't really think about until, until you watch it and you go, oh, wait, maybe but sure. I think that's a really specific um, reference, um, specifically at that point um, in Friday the 13th, because that moment Mm -hmm. subverts your expectation. And this movie does that every which way, starting with the way this opening scene goes. Right. And I think probably what I, one of the things I love most about the opening scene is the way it does that in the idea that in slashers, there's the male gaze, which is when the killer is watching the victim and you see it from their point of view. Whereas in this opening scene of Scream, the camera stays with Casey the whole time with the exception of the one shot when her boyfriend's tied up outside. But um, but it stays with her. We never, we never know who's watching. We never know where they are. And so when... You know, she she does get attacked. It's like all the more surprising because we, we we as the audience don't know where the threat is coming from. Whereas traditionally in slashers, we have some idea just based on camera shot. Right. And if you pay attention, like throughout this movie, there are sexual innuendos and jokes, but the camera mm. shots are very purposeful. There are no lingering camera um insinuating male gaze or anything like that um it's just 
there's nothing that overtly sexualizes these characters. Right. Which is different from the way quite a bit of horror is shot. So he, um, when they're on the phone, right before she discovers Steve, you know, we uh, hear him, she goes, who's there? And he says, well, might as well investigate a mysterious noise. And, you know, they're kind of making fun of those horror tropes already. And one of the tropes I kind of feel like is a pattern in a lot of horror movies is that the boyfriend tends to die first. And maybe that's because we get better screams and scares out of the girlfriend. But, yeah. Right. Well, again, it goes back to, like, the rules of horror because there's, like, certain things that always happen that you know, like, that's why they're they're stereotypes because they're things that you know are going to happen or things that are going to make the characters get killed. Like, when I was in college and I wrote my undergraduate thesis on patterns of violence in slasher films and remakes, I went and looked at, like, what are the what are the events that happen in, in these movies? I specifically looked at Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, but what are the things that always happen in both films that you just know are going to happen to the characters and whether or not they changed? And several of them did not change. And those include things like teenagers that have sex or do drugs, they're going to die. And, you know, it's just, um, it's like how how someone gets killed are the men killed first? Are the girls killed um, less brutally? And then, of course, there's the final girl who is the character that survives at the end or is the one that confronts the killer. And in this particular movie, it's Sydney. So because of this movie is the way it is, I made some specific um, time marks for this opening scene. And, you know, we get the big three, Freddie, Jason, and Michael, Um, at the seven and a half minute mark Mm -hmm. we get steve is our first death at the eight minute mark but we actually don't get a glimpse of the killer till the nine minute and 12 second mark wow so that's that's a long opening shot or opening sequence yeah and then we don't even get a first glimpse of the ghost face mask um, the first shot of the ghost face mask until 10 minutes and 20 seconds into the film, which is over a minute after we get the first glimpse. And the first stab doesn't even happen until the 10 minutes and 47 seconds point. And Casey doesn't get stabbed for nearly 11 minutes of this film. And when in a horror film have you seen the during the opening scene, the characters not get the main character of that opening scene not get stabbed for nearly 11 minutes. It's interesting too because that sort of long sequence where the killer is stalking the victim, it's it's traditionally like what happens to the final girl is it's a long drawn out process because she gets away or she's clever and she doesn't get killed immediately, which is why she's the final girl. Um, but that, in a way, this film kind of subverted that and also gave that to Casey. I mean, Casey does everything pretty, pretty right. She tries to lock the doors. Uh, she grabs the phone so she can call the police. She grabs a knife. She gets out of the house when she realizes the killer's in the house. But it doesn't work. 
and then she gets one of the most brutal deaths. I mean, she gets stabbed multiple times, and her mom picks up the phone and can hear her on the phone gasping. And then the phone goes dead. And the next thing you know, her mom is walking out of the house, and she screams because the next shot is of Casey hanging from the tree with she's completely gutted with her intestines hanging out and it's definitely memorable the way the camera with the mom screaming it just zooms speedily up to Casey's body and that's the shot you get before you cut to Sydney and again there are no opening credits I honestly think it would have taken away from the film had there been opening credits Oh, absolutely. That's, I mean, that was completely intentional on the part of um, the camera work to, to film the scene that way, to have it written that way, um, to have the credits be where they are. Just, I mean, everything was completely intentional to draw in the audience and have that like shock factor of like, this is the killer. This is the death. Um, this is going to be a movie about this mysterious killer in a ghost face mask terrorizing this small uh, group of teens in California. Right. And I don't think it works in a lot of films, but because of the combination of Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven, it does. The acting in this movie is completely on point, but there are certain stylistic choices and dialogue choices that wouldn't have worked if it were someone else writing the script or someone else directing it. Absolutely. Well, because this film too, because it's also, it's, I mean, it's, it's really poking fun at the genre as a whole. Like it's a satire on it. It's not just like some random movie that just happens to be a slasher like everything about it is very intentional um it has good directing it has good writing it has good cinematography it has an excellent cast it's this perfect storm of like storytelling in a very specific genre and the great thing about scream was even though like it's a cult classic but it really revitalized horror in the 1990s because um like like you said before, the Halloween and Friday the 13th and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and A Nightmare on Elm Street, all these movies came out in the 70s and the 80s. And suddenly the there, there wasn't like a big 90s movie that was like bringing people back uh, to horror and this and Scream was this movie because it really, it kind of like poked fun at everything and made, for lack of a better term, uh, horror popular because it was like, look at these, you know, popular high school kids and um this could be like this could be modern day america and this something like this could happen and and the film is based on a real life case it's based on the gainesville ripper so i mean it wasn't like you know i mean i think some of the appeal is that it, it was something that could actually happen and that's why people were like wait what yeah i think this movie subverted a lot of expectations and um 
you know, especially when it gets to who the killers are. And listeners, if you haven't figured it out already, we're going to spoil the crap out of this movie and any movie we talk about. So if you haven't watched this movie yet, what are you doing with your life? Stop listening at this point. Go watch it and then come back and listen to this. Let's get into the characters a little bit. Who is your favorite character in this movie? Gail. I love Gail. I love a good bitch. (laughs) I love a good bitch. (laughs) I just like that she was the reporter. Coming from somebody with a journalism degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I also also sort of identified with Randy just because I was like, I mean, I wasn't a complete nerd. I did play sports and I was very um, like active in activities, but I was like the movie person that was like, I did. I I was always at the video store. I was always watching different movies. Um, I was that person that would like know the rules of the horror film, and I would tell people. So I always enjoy um, his scenes, and of course his dialogue. I mean, I can relate to Randy too. I mean, I used to work in a video store, <laughs> and um, something we'd have to do is we'd. Uh, or get the opportunity to do is we'd get um, releases a little bit before and we'd we'd be it'd be suggested that we watch them so we could actually make recommendations and some of the horror movies we got oh my god they were awful well and something that we've kind of touched on because you know we've seen this movie a lot and we've talked about this movie a lot together um, is the Danny and Sandy style relationship that Sydney and Billy have. And, you know, it's like the virginal ponytail girl fall in love with the greaser bad boy James Dean type. Like, what do you think about the, um, the wardrobe choices for these characters? Do you think it fits them? What do you think? Yes, I mean, it is somewhat intentional because, of course, like, again, with the rules of horror, like, Sydney's supposed to be this virginal girl that's, like, not going to have sex because she's the final girl and she's not going to die. And then, while as her friends are, like, having sex and dressing, like, wearing crop tops and, you know, drinking all the time and she's she's supposed to be, like, the innocent one that, like, doesn't do things. And then, but she's got, like the bad boy boyfriend but that like respects her and so it's 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 very by design that these characters are who they are and I think even like with Stu his whole personality um it was a really good choice just I mean it was a testament to his acting as well but he was just like the jerk that would make like the inappropriate jokes and but he was like dating the best friend and so he was like that person in the group and then you don't you don't see him as being as involved as he is later just because of the way he plays it. He's just like the best friend. And then later you're like, oh, he was like the one nobody saw coming. Okay, because we're already at this point of the discussion, uh, we have to talk yes. about Matthew Lillard. Stu wouldn't have been as good had it not been Matthew Lillard. I will die on this hill. Nobody argue with me. Matthew Lillard made stew. I mean, he definitely had the range to play that, and it just works. 
like it there's just things that Matthew Lillard does that embodies who Stu is and you know like he's got different vocal patterns and different things that he does with his voice to change it up and make it funny and he has nonverbal mannerisms that are so fantastic and it you I don't think we really appreciate the nuances that he gives Stu until the end when it's revealed that Stu and Billy are the killers. Right. Because the movie really stokes the fire that, like, it's Billy. Because he's, like, got the bad boy persona and he plays up that whole, like, I'm innocent and, like, why don't you believe me to Sydney? And because she, she's, like, convinced that it's him. Um, and it's it sort of sets him up as being like the the kind of like guy from the wrong side of town that is really innocent and then whoops no <laughs> yeah he definitely was not innocent um you know there's a moment in the kitchen when they're talking to Sydney at the end uh, where they're talking about motive and Billy's like you want a motive? How's this for a motive? Your slut mother mm-hmm. was fucking my father. And then the camera cuts to Stu, and he's looking shocked. Like, he's open mouth. He's kind of seems stunned. Do you, you think Stu knew about that? I don't know, because to me, especially in that scene, um, Stu's really playing up this this the idea that they're just like they're just psychopaths so whereas i think of the two of them billy was like the planner and the the executor whereas Stu was like oh this is fun because i'm not entirely sane you know so i think i think it was like a, a play on both whereas like billy was really calculated in how he like revealed information because he's even like he even talks about how he doesn't need a mo- motive or they didn't need one and like, or which, or he throws out a, a couple and just kind of says to Sydney, like, there's your motive. I think Matthew Lillard like physically embodied Stu. I mean, he had these little movements and things that he did that really brought the crazy in that final scene. And I'm telling you, if it had been anybody else, I think there would have been something missing. Um, especially because in that final sequence, we get one of my favorite lines. And um, it's when Stu is slumped over the table because he's losing a lot of blood. Billy stabbed him really deep and probably too many times. And Billy is in the background and he's tearing up the pillows, super angry. Um, because Sydney disappeared and she called the cops on them. But um, Skeetort had uh, a lot of fake blood on his hands and um, he had the, the phone in his hand. And I guess when he went to go throw it, it kind of got stuck. So when he threw it, it didn't go in the right place and it hit Matthew Lillard in the head. And he just plays off of it. And he turns around and he goes, You hit me with the phone, dick. <laughs> it's my favorite line. I love it so much. And the fact that he was able to just play off of somebody hitting him in the head with the phone was freaking brilliant. And then he just continues on and he picks up the phone and she says, Oh, stew, stew, stew. And, um, when 
he asks her, did she call the cops? She goes, you bet you're sorry, yes, I did. And he just goes, my mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. <laughs> Nobody could have pulled this off like Matthew Lillard. I love this movie so much, and I love Matthew Lillard. I need him to be in more things. He brought so much nuance to Stu, and I think this film did a great job with that with all of the characters, especially in the wardrobe choices. Absolutely. And I mean, the film really stands up. Like, there are bits of it that are dated, just with, like, the, the calling on the phone without caller ID and stuff, but the characters, the story... Even some of the dialogue, it really just holds up no matter what year you're watching it in. And I think a character that doesn't get enough credit is Tatum. Yes. You know, Tatum is supposed to be like the hot mm-hmm. girl, the spot, blah, blah, blah. The ditzy blonde. And really, she's not. She's multifaceted, multidimensional. Rose McGowan does an excellent job, and she really makes you care about that character. Um, Tatum really seems like your best friend or someone who you want to be your best friend. Mm -hmm. I mean, she can sit down and have those tough conversations with Sydney and be kind to Sydney while also being completely kind of bitchy and absolutely fabulous. I love Tatum. Yeah, she's relatable. But... Yeah, I mean, at one point, they have Sydney in this short t-shirt and nightgown thing, and then Tatum's wearing big, fluffy cloud pajamas, which kind of shows that she's not just this hot girl who wears crop tops outside of um, the home and everything like that. And it shows when she's having these hard conversations with Sydney, especially about when she has that conversation with her mo- about her mom and the whole cotton weary thing and... You know, she doesn't want to tell Sid, but she feels like Sid has the right to know that there were things being said. And that really is a true friend. Yeah, the characters are all really fleshed out. And they're not just like surface people that would just randomly be thrown in there. Like they all have a purpose. Everything about them is has been like researched and like down to their clothes and how they talk and their empathy and who they're friends with and how they interact. And again, it's like just everything coming together to just, and it just works in this film. And another thing that I really like about Tatum is her death. Oh my God. Because she does not die while she's having sex. No, she doesn't. And it's one of the most original and most memorable deaths in a horror sequence. And she had, she had a pretty good fight scene too. I mean, it's not like she, he just showed up and killed her. She fought hard. Yeah, she wasn't... Yeah, she didn't just, like, give up and be a ditz. Like, she fought for her life and then had her neck crushed in the garage door. No, oh, I already beat Tatum. Yes. Yeah, that's one of the first movies that has... Like, first scenes that has stuck with me since I watched this movie. Yeah. I remember I was living in a house that had a garage, and I was, like, so thankful that there wasn't a doggy door. I was just, like, I could not could not deal with that. Oh, my gosh, I know. <laughs> you remember how I said I was, like, a scaredy-cat child? I was terrified of garages after watching this movie, and I would always try to run under the garage door because I didn't want to get crushed like Tato did. 
Yeah, but I was sad that Tatum died because she was an awesome character. And, you know, like I said, she was a best friend you want to have. And she's like a best friend that I do have. I think a person that didn't get a whole lot of development was probably Randy. True, but I mean, he was so he was he was the he was the explainer of the film. Like he had to be there because he was the one that was bringing everybody like to the idea that they were actually in danger. Like when they're at the party, he stops Halloween to explain the rules of slasher films because they don't know. And and even while he's standing there and saying you cannot have sex. You cannot drink and do drugs. And they're like throwing popcorn at him and drinking and laughing. Like he's explaining all of these things. And some of them do happen. So it's his his character was like the the person that is is really more there for the audience than for the characters. Yeah. And I think, you know, a big complaint with horror fans is a lot of these movies kind of are way too obvious because they treat the audience as almost stupid and this movie doesn't do that it celebrates the genre while making fun of the genre and then while being a part of the genre and then it turns the genre upside down and remakes it it's just a brilliant movie right because it's not a parody film like they're not making fun of it it's a satire so, and I think Randy was the one that was there to like ground all of that. Yes. Um, you know, he's the one that's like, here it is. Here's the rules of horror. Here's what horror is. And he, you know, kind of is there to be that the obvious storyteller, but it's not in a way that just like punches you in the face. And, you know, I think this movie was also created to probably bring people back into the genre or into the genre for the first time. Right, which is why they go into Halloween and he goes into the rules and he talks about you don't say, I'll be right back. Or when the the scene when uh, Randy's watching the, the movie and he's like, look behind you, look behind you. And Ghostface is behind him, like about to kill him. And then at this point, Sydney's run out of the house and get, gets to the van and... uh the camera guy is saying is showing that like he's like look there, there's cameras in the house you're freaking out for no reason and, and they they watch ghostface again like behind randy on the couch and then they open the, the door of the van and they see the front door of the house open and he remembers that it's on a 30 second delay and so they like look back at the at the camera in the van to see like what happened next and then ghostface is outside because of the delay he managed to get to them um but it's just like little things like that like people that are fans of horror would recognize those things, but maybe people that don't would then like go watch Halloween or go be interested to learn. Like, what are these things that these themes that you can look through throughout all of these films? Like if you thought that was funny or interesting, then you would enjoy other slasher films. Oh, Kenny. Let's talk about Kenny for a second. First of yes, all, Kenny. he dies in a very not Kenny. fun way. He gets his throat slashed. And then he also has to deal with Gail. <laughs> so I kind of like the introduction of Gail because, you know, when you first see her, she's giving a news report. She seems really professional. 
And you're just like a, a news reporter. It's not really focused on her. She's just kind of in passing. You notice the neon green suit, the highlighter suit. Um, and then you see her uh, giving this news report when Sydney's flipping through the channels. And it's the report Gail's doing on the murder of Sydney's mother. Which I really love the buildup of that, by the way, when Tatum kind of right. cuts off what she's talking about at the school, and then Principal Embry and the sheriff and Dewey are like the da- she's the daughter of, and it kind of trails off, and then you get Gail introducing this story, which is one important to Gail's role in this film, and two, it also kind of sets up who Gail is especially why she's important to this particular story. Yeah, she's almost like an antagonist for Sydney. And you really get the sense of Gail when she's pulling up to Sydney's house after the attack, and she's like, Jesus, the camera, hurry! And Kenny just goes, my name isn't Jesus. And she gets mad at him because he's really slow. And when she goes, Kenny, I know you're about 50 pounds overweight, but when I say hurry, please interpret that as move your fat tub of lard ass now. I mean, this woman will let no one or anyone stand or anything stand in her way of succeeding. And she is ruthless and ambitious. And you see this in her first interaction that we get off um, from one of her reports when she's with Kenny. Because she was the, she's doing her job, but she's like reporting to the world about Sydney's mother's death and like trying to interview her about it. And it's like, why are you torturing this innocent high school girl that lost her mother tragically? I have to really appreciate Courtney Cox in this role because as a someone who's a really big fan of Friends, it's really interesting to see the differences between Monica and Gail. And you forget about Monica while Courtney's being Gail. That's how well she embodies this role and how well this film really enraptures you in the characters and what they have to offer. You forget about their other roles. You don't see them as the actors. You see them as those characters. Yeah, it's what's, what's what I like about Courtney Cox in this and most of the actors is that when you watch them in this in Scream you don't think about other characters that they've been because you're so invested in the characters that they are here and you're not reminded of Monica from Friends or you know other other things that people have been in like all of um Rose's like TV work and um that sort of thing so it's just it, right. You care about those characters because of how well they were developed and how well they were played. I mean, you get to know exactly what Gail's about when Sydney introduces the idea that Cotton might be innocent, and after she insinuates that to Gail, Gail's has this moment where she's like, "I could save a man's life," and Kenny looks at her like, "Oh, she's she's a really good person. She's got a good heart." And then she goes know what that could do for my book sales and he's just kind of like stunned like you almost had to get it now a lot of people have issue with the dewey gale storyline the romance but i don't because it softens gale up and i think that was important to this movie to make the characters as human and multifaceted as possible and for gale to have this soft 
or other side that's not just about her career and ambition was important to help you care about her character. Right. They complement each other well. Yeah. And, you know, we can get into it more when we talk about the sequels, but them and their relationship and it, there's such a driving force, especially in Scream 3, um, to the importance of the story. So, obviously, you know, there's one major character we haven't talked about yet. I mean, aside from Sid, uh, Billy. Does her bubble butt boyfriend Billy work for you? Also, what the hell does bubble butt mean? Apparently, I was too young for that reference. I was not. Um, so, well, what was your, when you, the first time you watched Scream, what was your impression of Billy? I thought he was odd. I mean, <laughs> as much as mm-hmm. an eight or nine year old could. <laughs> True. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. And then how were you, like, how surprised were you at the ending when it was him and Stu? Or when it was just him? The fact that it was just him? Yeah. And like, up until that point, I had just been watching, um, you know, rom-coms and more, like, fairy tales and age-appropriate stuff. So when the reveal happened, I was like, well, I just can't trust anybody. Like, I don't know what's going on here. And, yep, even our guys can't trust them. I just remember being so shocked. And I think it might have turned me off of the movie for a little while. Oh, really? And yeah, because I was like, no way a boyfriend would kill his girlfriend or try to kill his girlfriend. And <laughs> did I mention I was a very naive child? Yes. Not only was I scared of everything, but I was also very naive. <laughs> um, but anytime I have a chance to watch this movie, I watch it. But so Billy, I call I basically called him a James Dean um, wannabe. Very rebel without a cause, with gracie hair and the white t-shirt and the flannel and jeans, blah, blah, blah. Do you think that works for him? Because it seems to me like he comes from a rich family. Well, I mean, again, I think they're, a part of it was just they were trying to give him that, like, kind of classic bad boy look. Of just almost like almost like a throwback to to scream, or because because also I feel like I don't know that he's necessarily 
was meant to be like a rich kid because I think part of his like issue with Sydney is that she came from this like great family. He he climbs through her window like into her bedroom and like he knows it's just like her and her dad. But I get th- but he's but he doesn't like live next door, you know what I mean? Like I feel like there was some sort of uh there was supposed to be like uh I like you even though you're like a lot different for me. Maybe you like grew up with more money than I did. Um sort of again it goes back to the characters and making them like putting them in a box where it it perpetuates the stereotype of like the bad boy from the wrong side of town and this innocent girl and of course they like get together so again I think it's like intentional see to me Billy seemed more of the satirical representation of the bad boy. I never got that he was from the wrong side of the tracks. I mean, his father showed up wearing kind of a nice suit in the um, police station. And then, you know, Billy also has his own cellular telephone. So it was 1996 and not everybody could have those. So I don't think they were bad off and I don't think he was necessarily from the wrong side of the tracks and you know like the bad boys in movies they're usually from the wrong side of the tracks and I think this was more of a parody of that character you know like the guy who's trying to seem off seem like he's the cool bad boy when really he's just like a privileged kid true and he did specifically target her Sydney. Yeah, and do you think they were dating a while before then, you know, before he killed her mom? No. Because, again, like, he's not... I mean, I think... uh, I don't think he was, like, with Sydney and then found out about her mom and killed her. Like, I think they both, Sydney and Billy, both, like, obviously they lost a parent. And they were dealing with that. And it was almost like, of course, these two characters would, like, have something in common. Like, that's their their thing, is they both get it. Well, you know, they have that conversation in the beginning of the movie where, um, you know, he, they're talking about how they were hot and heavy and on well on their way to an NC-17 rating. And then they went to PG after Sydney lost her mom and it seemed like the trauma of losing her mom kind of stopped Sydney from wanting to go there. And so I think they were together for quite some time before he killed her mom, or at least they were together before then. And, um, you know, like, and I mean, Billy seems like the type that would have that like long term plan. Yeah, absolutely. Like, he'd play a long game. So, I don't They don't really... Um, it's not really clear, I think. Because he does, like, allude to things, but that could be, you know, weeks, months. We don't know. Speaking of alluding, when would you ever want somebody to equate your relationship with the exorcist? You never know. This movie has so many references. I was trying to write them all down, and I felt like if you made a drinking game out of the movie references, and you took a shot every time a horror movie was referenced, 
you would end up with alcohol poisoning. There are that many references in the movie. And, you know, I know that's purposeful with how this movie is. Um, and you said something really interesting the other day about the, um, like, the cover for this movie or, like, uh, the poster for this movie. What was that? About how it's um, it was supposed to remind everybody of Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. The face, the close-up on the face and the hand covering the mouth, even though it's in the, in the original, it's a butterfly. Right. And, I mean, they mentioned Silence of the Lambs by name in the second bedroom scene when Cindy and Billy are about to have sex. And they also mentioned the bad seed. Uh, and, you know, right before that, when Randy sees um, Billy and Sydney walk up the stairs to the bedroom, he goes, what's Leatherface doing here? And, you know, he and Stu have that little tete-a-tete. And Stu goes, as if, as if... And Randy says, oh, really, Alicia? So, I mean, this movie doesn't even just reference a lot of horror movies, but they reference, (laughs) that was a reference to Clueless. So, I mean, it's really smart about the current culture it's in. Right. There's just so many little, like, Easter eggs in this film that you could just keep watching it and you keep finding things or you might, like, have missed a reference or you forgot a reference was in there. So it's, it's always always fun to rewatch this film over and over right and um this movie is just brilliant i mean who doesn't like this movie yeah i think there's one time we actually get like the source with the quote and that's when billy says we all go a little mad sometimes anthony perkins psycho I mean, hello, mother issues, mother issues. That's why this quote was used. I mean, this, it, it's so purposeful, and this is the stuff that this movie does that makes it extra brilliant. Right, because again, it's, it's just another film making a reference. Okay, I want to touch on this phone call because it seems mm-hmm. to be a point of contention for Scream fans on why did Principal Henry have to die? Why? What was the purpose of it? Why? Um, and we need to go into that. Well, if you're paying attention, then you know that a couple of those party goers that are still there, um, when the phone call about Principal Henry happens, two of those students are the same students that Henry tries to expel earlier in the movie for running around in ghost face yes. and then you know they're present for that phone call and part of the reason for that phone call is to get other people out of the house that um you know allow us as viewers to focus on the characters we actually have come to care about and the you know the characters that billy and Stu are going after right it was a, it was intentional to get the party goers to leave so that there were less people in the house so that the murder could be committed. Well, and also he also, I mean, he's the principal. He's the adult that is punishing the students for, for running through the halls with the ghost face masks. So it was, it's almost like a misdirection of like, wait, why is he dead? He just took the like mask from the guys that were playing a prank. Like it kind of, it kind of takes the audience away from uh, being suspicious of other people. Like, wait, why did he die? 
who killed him like what so it's i mean it was it was well it was well planned and thought out and like you said it, it made um the kids that were at, that had worn the mask were at the party and when they found out they left Yeah, and did you notice in the one scene where Sydney goes in to be interviewed by the sheriff that Principal Embry kind of, like, cups her chin? Yeah. And this is probably me reading beyond the script and what the script is actually telling us, but um, maybe it was possible that Sydney, you know, told Billy about Principal Embry touching her face like that. I mean, the way the sheriff reacts, it seems like it was kind of like something that was meant to be uncomfortable. That's possible that he could be, um, that Billy could be uh, reacting to maybe his interest in Sydney. Because again, he's like the the adult figure that like has access to all the characters. And so um, like what is their relationship is he just comforting her because she's going to talk to the cops and he knows about like her mother's death still being so recent like he's supposed to be this like sympathetic character but again he's is he he's making himself a target more than once by like showing that he's close with sydney well and that's why i'm wondering if sydney may have said something to billy you know obviously off camera and we're probably again we are reading into this but, you know, um, because Billy seems the type to be react out of anger. And again, we're reading into this, but that's the fun of this movie is that there is so much to read into. There is so much to interpret here. Just like, did you notice um, most of the other characters had that, you know, we've come to care about, they have bolder colors. They're, they've got something a little bit more bright on them or um, at least some color. Whereas Billy and Stu, minus the um, kimono or robe that Stu's wearing at the party scene, you know, they're wearing muted colors and neutrals and browns. They want him to blend in more. They don't want him to stand out because it, it helps the, um, the reveal at the end when it's like, wait, it was them? Because you're not thinking about them. They're not like loud and flashy and in your face, so... It takes your mind off of it as the as a member of the audience. Yeah, I mean, this film makes you care about its characters and care about its story. And it's a fantastic whodunit. Yeah, and this is a brilliant movie. And you're going to have people who are going to be like, oh, Scream, like, started all this stuff coming up right. and it just all sucks. And it's like, yeah, because it's not the combination of Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven. Uh, a perfect example of how they work together is the scene when Tatum and Sydney are shopping for Stu's party um, at the grocery store. And they're in the frozen section, and Sydney's reaching in there to grab something, and Tatum says, um, he'll fall out, referring to Billy and Sydney and their sex life. Um, and then as she says that, Sydney reaches out and grabs popsicles. Which, you know, popsicles can be considered, like, a phallic object. And then Tatum says, Billy and his penis don't deserve you. It is absolutely brilliant and, uh, and absolutely hilarious, especially because those are just little things that they've done with this movie. Like, they paid attention to that and really made every single thing in this film purposeful. Yeah, so with this, I think we need to get into the topic of meta. 
this movie knows exactly what it is, what it's doing, where it's going, and what it's supposed to be. Does the meta work for you? Well, I think the one of the important things to remember about Scream is it is this film that has all these great references to other slashers and all these references and we've gone through all these things that we've noticed because we love the genre but like like I was saying the first time I watched this I was just like it's a teen movie that is like supposed to be scary because kids are getting murdered like I didn't get it but later when I understood like what the genre was about and like the rules and like the fact that why does the killer choose this weapon and why do they choose to kill this person in this order and if you have sex why do you die like when I when I understood that those rules existed and why um, they happened in a specific order and everything. I loved these movies more and I, I watched Scream again and I thought it was brilliant, but you have to be aware. This is a film that you can't just like watch it cold. And I mean, you, you could love it for what it is, but if you really love slasher films, this is like the Holy grail because it just has so many things packed into it and we could talk about it for hours and hours about what a good film or what a good um, story it is just in the genre. I mean, this movie is the definition of self-referential. I mean, there's so many movies from the genre it references. You know, obviously you've got the big three, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare. I mean, Wes Craven even makes a cameo as Fred the janitor who's wearing a fedora and a red and green striped sweater. And you have, again, Bad Seed and Silence of the Lambs, The Exorcist, Carrie, um, so many more. Uh, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Uh, This movie is meta. It is absolutely meta. And that's basically the point of this movie and what it's supposed to be. And there is no other film like it. And Tatum, even when she's talking to Sydney about Casey and Steve's murders... She references it as something out of a splatter movie. This movie knows exactly what it is, where it's going, and it's not afraid to um, parody the genre while also um, turning it upside down and reinventing it. This movie is absolutely on point with what it's trying to be, and it does that throughout the entire film franchise. This movie knows exactly what it is, and, you know, you have... A lot of people who will say, oh, I don't really like the movie because it doesn't take itself seriously enough. And it's just like, okay, have you not figured out what movie you're watching at this point? And in that same scene, Sydney says, Casey Becker, she sits next to me in English. And Tatum says, not anymore. This movie knows exactly what it is. And if you don't, I'm, I'm not sure what movie you've been watching. It is very obvious what it's supposed to be. And, you know, it maybe it's one of those things where you have to watch it when you get a little older and can understand satire a little bit better. But this movie lets you know exactly what it is. Meta is something that can be really hard to achieve in the horror genre. And this movie does it. And it does it well. It does it really well. Right, it's just another way that like every single camera shot, every choice, every costume, every line of dialogue was like intentionally thought about because the script was written and the film was developed by people that genuinely love horror. Scream gave us, or gave the audience, I should say, 
a a new way to enjoy horror. Like there are a lot of people that maybe weren't interested in it and saw Scream and went, oh, like this is great or this is a cool movie. And that's why it did so well at the box office. And that's why um, it became this cult classic was because people were like, this is an awesome movie. Um, it's a relatable film even now. And so it's just, I mean, Scream really just changed the mark for horror. That's really important to talk about because we didn't talk about it when we were talking about the characters. Um, but Sydney subverts final girl expectations. In what way? First of all, she has sex before the end of the movie. So that's one of them. <laughs> Well, of course. And, you know, like, she does have a little bit of her catty, bitchy side to her. And, you know, she punches Gail. She's not just this meek, um, wallflower-type girl that we tend to get with some final girls. She's definitely Mm -hmm. got the fight in her. There's nothing that, um, you know, it's already in her. It doesn't have to be pulled out of her by her teeth. Like, it... It's in her, and she does fight the entire time. Yeah, they're usually not as assertive until they're actually fighting for their life. To me, Sydney almost seemed too strong to be a final girl compared to what we've seen in movies before. So, um, but because she was able to be kind of catty and bitey and strong... Um, we got a really great heroine that we could kind of look up to. And because of Sydney, we have some more heroines that are stronger, fight harder throughout the entire movie, and you just love. And that have become horror legends themselves, like Aaron in Your Next and Tree from Happy Death Day. I mean, in, in Happy Death Day is a very similar type film to Scream. Mm-hmm. And you hate Tree at first, but then you grow to love her. And, you know, these heroines are much more relatable on a wider scale to a lot more people. And a large part of that reason is because of this film and because of Sydney. Absolutely. It was definitely the beginning of... Um, and it's definitely a standout final girl performance because it's not traditionally, um, traditional or conventional. And she's not blonde. And she's not blonde. You know, we're really lucky to have grown up with heroines in final girls like Laurie Strode and Jenny from Friday the 13th Part 2 and Sydney. Um, and you know, especially Laurie. Laurie paved the way for final girls and you know she still had this big battle to overcome innocence and um sydney didn't have that she was far less innocent and much more um seemingly real in the grand scheme of things and I appreciate when that trope can be turned upside down like that. Absolutely. That's why Scream, again, was just so 
successful as a film is just because it 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 took the the slasher themes and and sort of played with it a little bit and was like well what if the final girl isn't perfect and what if these people don't die or they don't die in the way that they have been dying so it was just there was there was nothing like it and scream really kind of blew things wide open in terms of like what you could do with characters and your story and even in later films they even go further into exploring like um even having additional killers and other forms of uh like surveillance and um even more victims and just it was really the beginning of scream was really the beginning of like a new wave of what slasher could be let's go back to something you just said for a second can you think of a movie that had two killers in the original? You mean a slasher film that had two killers yeah. in the original film? Well, no, because the the whole idea was that it was like, especially with like Halloween, Michael Myers, even though he's a little boy, and then Friday the 13th, Freddy Krueger, or I mean Jason, and then Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger. It was, it was like this monster that was going to come get you. So there was, there was never an idea of like, Oh, it could be two people. Whereas scream was like, wait a minute. Cause the whole point of Stu was everybody thought Billy was guilty, but wait, somebody died. And, and, um, and, uh, Billy was with the police. He had an alibi. So it was like, obviously it can't be him. And so the audience thinks, Oh, it's not Billy. And then wait, it is Billy because it's also Stu. So again, it's advancing the story. And again, in later sequels, there's even more people that are aware of what's happening. It's not often I can think of a movie that has more than one killer. Um, You know, like there's Last House on the Left and I Spit on Your Grave. I... I mean, I guess they didn't kill her, but, um, you know, Last House on the Left, you have the parents taking revenge on these people, but that's not usually the case with whodunit slashers. So uh, it was really interesting to have that in here because you didn't expect it, and you didn't expect it to be somebody you know, the the characters knew, let alone two people and let alone high school students. I mean, you have Billy, who is super angry because his mom left. And, you know, Sydney's mom is the reason. And then you have Stu, who is far too sensitive and gives into peer pressure. And, you know, he's just crazy. So did you believe in the red herrings? Um, did I believe in the red herrings? I mean, going in, knowing that it's supposed to be a satire, there's some things that you're just, as a fan, you're just aware of, like, um, but at the same time, because they do subvert there are times when you're like, well, wait, because like when once Sydney has sex, you're like, okay, um, what's gonna happen now? Because she has sex, but um, 
I can't say that I was like fooled by any of them. Like, I, I mean, I don't, I can't sit here and say that like, oh, I figured the whole thing out and I was totally surprised. But I think the first time I saw it, I was just like, I wasn't expecting. I know I wasn't expecting Stu, but I wasn't sure about Billy just because of the way it was, everything played together. So I think some of them, I was like completely like, oh, that's the direction that they went in. Whereas with other things, I was more or less like, okay. Um, I think it just depends on the reference because there are more than one. I mean, obviously a lot of the names in this movie came from um, sort of recognizable staples in the horror genre, like Billy Loomis. Hi, Halloween. (laughs) Um, And then did you know that when Randy kept referencing Prom Night that the... um, actor who played Nick in the movie, his name was Casey Stevens. Yeah. Kevin Williamson is brilliant. It's another little homage. The writing is excellent and of course the directing and the cinematography. So there were I mean I mean again it's we've said it a couple times, but it's just a movie you can just watch over and over and over and get something out of. Was there anything in Scream that like in your opinion didn't work? Okay, I have to talk about the scene in the bathroom in the high school. It is not my favorite scene, but I get the importance of why it's there. So, you know, Sydney's in the bathroom. She just ran into Billy. She's upset, and she hears these girls talking about her mother and her, and, you know, maybe she's a slut just like her mother, And, you know, I think it's the, yes, she's already kind of started to doubt that Cotton was the one who um, killed her mother. But I think this plants the seed of doubt even further. This is kind of the catalyst that really, like, gets that thought going. And then I think that's what really puts the seed of doubt in the audience's mind. Is it my favorite? No, but is it important? Absolutely. What about you? Was there anything that just didn't work for you? Um, was there something that maybe was lacking? Um, I don't know that anything was lacking. Um, I did like the the little changes, some little changes that were made, like to to kind of complement on the genre. But there's not like a scene that sticks out where I'm thinking like, oh, they did not need to put this in. I mean, I like the choices they made. Obviously, they have to do things like have the high school kids prank by running through the halls with ghost based. And then, of course, they have to get in trouble and the masks have to get taken, which eventually leads to a death. Um, But I like how, like, even in having to explain the rules, like the scene where Randy is like, you don't know the rules of the movie? Like, normally, like, something like that, you wouldn't want to actually sit down and tell the audience like, this is what you're supposed to know going in. But the way that they set up the scene and they set up his character was, it was very easy for him to stand up and say, this is what happened. And then of course the reaction isn't like, Oh, thanks for the info. It's like, boo, that's dumb, whatever. Like we're out. And so um, I think there were, there were things that could have been, kind of done wrong or like do we really need the scene but the choices that were made 
um, like in the writing and stuff to kind of advance the story without treating us like we're dumb as the audience. I think Scream did all of that very well. It really did. I mean, I go back to this movie all of the time. And, you know, there are references that are very dated, but there's something about this movie that just keeps pulling you in and you keep going back to it. Okay, let's talk about the final sequence. Did the reveal work for you? Did the motive work for you? Um, What were your thoughts while watching it? I thought it was well done. I liked how even, I mean, obviously I wasn't expecting both billions to, but I liked how even in the theme of like Billy sitting there explaining, you know, why about like explaining about Sydney's mom and her reaction and Stu's reaction and even um, saying like, does there have to be a motive? You know, that, that those kind of things like the it, I thought it was very in character. I thought it was good because um, he's you clearly see how just angry he is and how much of a mastermind he has been of all the events that have happened. Um, and Sydney is, is kind of the first time she's really confronted with like, this is the truth. This is what happened. Like he's a murderer and he's this monster and I have to get myself out of the situation and I have to understand why it's happening. And I think she really, Sydney really goes from this like unsure meek place to I'm going to get out of here alive and destroy the both of you. And I think that final girl growth is probably one of my favorite things about Scream, just rewatching it. And again, like, uh, just, just Stu's lines about, you know, I'm feeling woozy here and just the dropping the, the phone and, uh, and Billy just, you know, not answering Sid's questions and just being generally psychotic. Um, like tearing up those throw pillows, man. The others are going everywhere. Oh, yeah. Have a ginger ale, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I like that. And even, I mean, even when she gets away and there's what I love when she has the, um, when Sydney, Sydney has the ghost face voice, like really turning the tables on him and really making Billy mad. So it was, it was, it's probably one of my favorite things to rewatch just from her perspective because you can really see Sydney's growth as a character and you really see everything like start to unravel and you're suddenly not sure like, I mean, I mean you know how it's going to end, but you're not sure how the movie's going to get there. Right, and, and I think it's much more apparent when you get to Scream 2, but I don't think there was any way Billy was going to let Stu live through this. Oh, no. I mean, it was, it was really clear that... Uh, that Stu was going to die. Like, Billy was not going to let him live. Yeah, Stu was the fall guy. And there was something about Stu that was easy for Billy to manipulate. Absolutely. He was just there for the fun of it. He just wanted to kill people. Whereas Billy had the actual reason. Okay. What did you think about Stu's death? I gotta know, what did you think about his death? I'm a fan. (laughs) I'm a fan. That's great. So you approve of the TV getting shoved on the head? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it 
certainly wasn't what I thought was going to happen. So was it kind of nice to see somebody killed with something other than the knife? Yeah, well, that's that's going back to the idea of like where Scream kind of subverted where he, he was, you know, he got hit by the TV. It wasn't like he got stabbed to death, like because Billy wanted him to die. So um, again, it was like it was like with Tatum. It was like you're not expecting it. And then it happens. And I appreciated it for what it was. And it was a way to like really finally end his character without him bleeding out, which would have been nothing but predictable and lame. Yeah, so this final part um, where Sydney jumps out of the closet and she stabs him with an umbrella. Do you think an umbrella could actually stab that deep? I mean, if you do it hard enough, sure, it's still blunt force. I mean, I guess. But uh, were you satisfied with these last few moments between Sydney and Billy? I think so, because it kind of goes back to the scene when he when he is in her room and she's just so clearly, like, the the innocent, like, help me you know explain things to me like you know she's trying to assure him that she's like still um that she hasn't changed and that she believes him and whereas like at that point in the movie when he's gonna die she's like done a complete 180 and like i'm the badass now and i'm gonna destroy you and kill you and you're not gonna get away with any of this so it's I like again I like the growth that they gave her for the film. It wasn't just like, oh, you did all these horrible things to my mom and and my family and me in this town, and I'm gonna kill you. Like there was a lot more substance and emotion behind it. Whereas uh, Billy was always trying to like even even when he was explaining what he did to her mom, he was just like, I don't need a motive. I can just do this because I'm angry and I want to. And Sid, but Sydney was was very clear about like. Like, this is my reason. I'm going to kill you. You're gonna not going to get away with this. So, going off, like, Sydney's growth, I'm happy that her growth didn't happen in those final minutes. I mean, the party scene lasts 45 minutes. But mm-hmm. she had growth the entire time. It wasn't just in those last 45 minutes or even the last five minutes. It was the entire movie. Um. Sydney wasn't the typical final virginal girl. She she was multifaceted, just like every other character in this movie was. I mean, there's times where you might be rooting for even Billy, and or um, some of the other characters, but because you're you just love them and they're human to you and they're relatable, and this movie draws you into them exactly. I know we keep saying that, but I, we have to say it. I mean, there's not much more to say about it. So what are your final thoughts? What I want to say about Scream is that as much as it's a great film for horror, it's still a great film. Like, you could just watch this movie and without knowing the things that we've been talking about and you can still enjoy it you can still even if you get the film references or the the dialogue references you can enjoy scream for what it is as a as just like a teen film or you can enjoy it like us where we just dissect the hell out of it and every little reference and go into like oh could these things be possible 
like this film anybody can watch it it's not just like for diehard cinephiles or or anything like that it's just that's why it's it's a classic film is just because it's a film anybody could watch right no lie i am going to make everybody who comes over for my 30th birthday we are going to watch this movie and i swear to god i'm going to talk to death about this film i love this film i fucking love it it is practically perfect in every way I can watch it. Oh, who would I be if I didn't make a Disney reference? I'm. It has stuck with me for over 20 years. I go back to this movie all the time. I own the entire series. I've watched all the TV series. By the way, don't watch the third season that came out on VH1 because it's terrible. But Ghostface is my ultimate killer. I love this franchise. It is my favorite horror franchise because of the fact that it it has that level of brilliance of with the comedy and the purposefulness in every single thing they do. Everything has a purpose, which I feel like sometimes we have a purpose for this, but not for this. This film thinks about everything from the line delivery to the outfit, to the objects they're holding, to the way they move and to their facial expressions. I mean, to every little piece of this film. This film should get more recognition for being a fabulous film overall. And it doesn't. Because as we all know, the film industry is does not respect horror as much as it should. And horror is probably one of the most brilliant genres. And this movie solidifies that. And like we said, some of the references are dated. But this film is going to transcend... I mean, it stood the test of time for me for 20 years, so I think it will for other people as well. Um, I think while people may not understand the references now, if they get introduced to those references and they they go and watch Scream, they're going to get it, and they're going to get this movie better. And they'll better be able to appreciate it. Yes, I mean, if if you're a fan of horror then this is a movie that you absolutely need to see but it does it's successful without needing to be mainstream successful it found lots of success financially and just it was just a popular film but it doesn't need to be recognized as like oh this is an amazing film if you love the genre you appreciate what this film stands for I mean, I had a friend who told me they didn't like Scream, and I'm like, okay, I'm thinking this through friendship right now. I mean, I want to tattoo his ghost face. I I will fight somebody over this film. I mean, we named our damn podcast after it. Obviously, we love this film. I mean, there's a reason for that. It's not just because we love this film and we're obsessed with it. It's just a damn good film. 
So those are my final thoughts. I'm going to say that's a wrap on Scream. Awesome. Our first episode down. Heck yeah. So what are we covering next week? Next week, we are talking about Candyman. Oh, you know, we couldn't pass up the chance to talk about Candyman when there's a remake coming out. We're so excited for it. We'll see how it goes. I'm sure we'll talk about it. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I'm buying my tickets now. And you're like, we'll see. Well, of course I'm going to see it, but I just mean I'm hesitant to call. See, I give films a chance, but I'm not like, I'm trying to get out of this habit of being like, oh my gosh, it's going to be so good just because I watched the movie trailer. Like, I love Scream, but I don't expect other people to love it. Like, I just, I mean, I hope they've seen it. And if they haven't, I'll introduce them to it. But I like bringing people into the story and talking about things. Whereas, like, um, like with Candyman, I, I watch a trailer and I, I want to see the film. But I'm, I'm trying not to be like, this is going to be the best. And it's going to be, like, better than the original. And I love the changes. And just, I'm trying to, I, when, th- when I haven't seen films, I go into them a lot more open-minded than I used to, I think feel like well yeah i can definitely understand where you're coming from on that (laughs) well if you'd like to reach us you can reach out on instagram to eas podcast or on facebook at everybody's a suspect podcast or on twitter at everybody's a suspect and also on gmail if you want to send us an email please do it's everybody's a suspect at gmail.com We hope you guys reach out. We are excited about the content we have coming for you guys. And we're excited to have you with us on this journey. So what I'd say, that is a wrap on the first episode of Everybody's a Suspect.